and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Julianne Justo, and I am a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy, and I practice as an infectious diseases pharmacist at Prisma Health Richland Hospital. When we founded the podcast back in 2018, we envisioned a space where clinicians could come together to brainstorm real-world clinical issues at the critical juncture where evidence base ends and the, quote, art of clinical practice begins. We are so very grateful to you, our loyal audience, who have enthusiastically joined us on this journey. Over the last 55 episodes of Breakpoints, we've grown immensely due to your feedback, and one of the messages that we've heard loud and clear is you desire more discussions on challenging, multidrug-resistant, gram-negative bacterial infections. Hence, our ongoing series on gram-negative infections within Breakpoints was born. We began with rockstar episodes from Aaron McCreary, Ryan Shields, and Robert Bonomo discussing the in-depth mechanisms of resistance in our Nefarious Orchestra episodes, numbers 46 and 47. Aaron then continued the conversation with experts Pranita Tama and Sam Aiken discussing the recent IDSA guidance documents on the treatment of antimicrobial resistant gram-negative infections in episodes 51 and 52. I strongly encourage you to go and listen to these if you haven't already. They represent some of our most popular episodes to date and are some of my personal favorites, and they create an incredible foundation for our next topic today. Now that we've laid the groundwork, we wanted to interview frontline expert clinicians managing some of the toughest aspects of gram-negative infections. Much of the previous focus in this series has been on definitive use of novel agents for MDR gram-negatives. That is, once rapid diagnostics and or antimicrobial susceptibility testing results suggest our typical first-line options are inactive. Today, though, we'd like to focus on a concept I'd like to call, quote, empiric escalation. That is, making the tough call on day one of therapy to move away from standard first-line options and use our ultra-broad gram-negative antibiotic agents. For example, this could be something like moving away from first-line piperacillin tazobactam or even meropenem and starting empiric therapy with ceftazidime avibactam for a patient with high likelihood of carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis infection at baseline. This topic is close to my heart as an antimicrobial steward and ID specialist, and I can't wait to hear what our experts have to say. First, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kate Desir, who is an infectious diseases clinical specialist at the University of Florida Health Shands Hospital in Gainesville, Florida. Kate, thanks for joining us. Hey, Julie, thanks so much for having me. Next, we have Dr. Frank Tverdick, who is an infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Julie. Appreciate you inviting me to chat about such a great topic. Uh, it's really at the core of my day-to-day -day work. All right, guys, so let's get started. I know this may be a lesser known term that we're using when we deem something empiric escalation. What does empiric escalation mean to you? Can you give us an example of a memorable empiric escalation recommendation you made for a particular patient case? So an easy example of patients at risk for MDR organisms would be our prolonged stay patients or our repeat admissions. And you all have your own patients where when they appear in your patient list, you know exactly what you need to cover because you know what they had last time. Um, more specifically in our, our burn population, We'll know for weeks that they're colonized with something nasty, even maybe a gram-negative rod that's harboring an NDM, but they're not quite infected yet. So we'll have that information to sit on and, and basically react to once they become infected. This is the same with our chronic trach patients who are, are colonized with, with MDR organisms. And so we have that information early before they're infected Oftentimes on my service, we'll initiate a, a conditional approval of some of our more novel agents, um, beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors and such, if a set of criteria are met, be it hemodynamic instability or the patient spikes another fever, um, for us to be able to escalate therapy aggressively and efficiently. But it should be said that even something as objective as hypotension can be misunderstood or misused um, or misinterpreted. 
So hypotension could be multifactorial. It could be orthostatic, it could be cardiogenic shock and not sepsis. So listing conditional approval in a note almost always leads to use of that novel agent. But I think we have to draw the line somewhere. So while we may be more scrutinous during our hours of operation and maybe hold off on that therapy for a couple of extra days or um, weeks, I think listing that conditional approval is um, a middle ground that we found that allows the efficient use of these agents. And I will say for our treatment experience patients, I often struggle with the notion of, of this balance between the competing arguments of they responded to cefepime last time, almost like a CFR. We do that all the time when we're comfortable there versus, well, they were just exposed to cefepime. Now they have recurrence and that exposure is a risk factor for cefepime resistance. So I'm not really sure how to protocolize that other than if they're hemodynamically stable and they're okay, maybe we have time to wait and start something reasonable and with generally good activity based on your antibiogram at your institution. And then when you see resistance escalate quickly. However, um, if they are not hemodynamically stable and they do have those risk factors, maybe it's appropriate to empirically escalate to one of the novel agents. Yeah, for me, <clears throat> empiric escalation is, is really optimizing a patient's antimicrobial regimen sort of beyond what would normally be recommended by like a guideline or a standard practice. So sort of a kind of one-off uh, for the patient. So I think this can happen when you um, have a patient where you deem them higher risk for some sort of specific pathogen like an MDR um, gram negative. Um, and it can also be a kind, of, kind of a step uh, stepwise process where uh, we have kind of, you know, minimal data at the beginning uh, of a patient's course. And then along the way, we kind of, um, you, you know, through microbiology and other things, we get more and more little steps of data. Um, and at each step, we have an opportunity to escalate or, uh, or change our therapy. Specifically, I work kind of in the hemonc world. And so I think an example of empiric escalation there um, is where uh, we may empirically escalate a patient's neutropenic fever plans. So many of you are probably familiar in neutropenic fever, uh, kind of the, you know, one of the go-to regimens is cefepime plus or minus vancomycin. Um, and I, you know, ideally, we, though, we would look at a patient before they have neutropenic fever uh, and look and see, do they have any risk factors for, for any multidrug resistant organisms? And instead of that kind of default regimen, um, we could consider empirically escalating them to say, uh, you know, bumping them up to miropenem should they have a neutropenic fever because they have a history of ESBL. You know, it's a great concept, um, but sometimes it's kind of hard to operationalize. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's easier on some of our transplant patients where they're, you know, they have a little more of a regimented plan in terms of, you know, date of transplant and they get a whole pre-transplant workup. So, you know, that's kind of in the hemonc world, but if I could give you maybe a more general example that might apply to, to more of you is, you know, really this idea that uh, having a plan B for whatever, uh, whatever regimen your current patient's on. So say you're treating someone for a specific sort of infection with a specific regimen. Um, you know, I'm always thinking about what, what happens if this patient goes septic or crashes? You know, what sort of things would we be thinking about in terms of escalating therapy? Um, and so I like to work with my ID team in, in my practice to come up with these little plans and, you know, uh, put them into our notes and things like that, just so that overnight, you know, when we have people overnight who are maybe by themselves or, or kind of newer, um, they're not faced with this, you know, uh, what do I do with this, this patient um, and gives them a little, uh, a little help um, when they need it. So, you know, maybe saying, you know, if someone breaks through on vancomiropenem, that could be pretty daunting. So, you know, give, give them a little help there. Um, thinking about in a, a specific example, um, this sort of happened recently uh, on my team. Uh, we were seeing a CAR-T patient who was being, you know, treated uh, for relapsed AML. Um, they were neutropenic and uh, they were being treated with Piptazo for a perirectal abscess for about 10 days, doing okay. Um, when all of a sudden their blood culture turned positive for a gram-negative rod, kind of in the late afternoon. Um, so we were notified and the primary team, you know, bumped the patient up from Piptazo to Miropenem, so an empiric ex escalation. Um, they were concerned about ESBL. So of course, I right away, you know, called up Micro and was like, hey, what can you tell me about this gram-negative rod? And they're like, well, it's rod-shaped and it's gram-negative. Um, so we've all been there, right? Very eager to get our information. Um, so I had to wait, uh, but we did get a little bit concerned about, well, maybe there's steno, uh, maybe there's pseudomonas. Um, so I asked them, well, can you page me when you get the species? At that point, um, I, I thought about 
you know, I was kind of worried about steno. So I asked uh, the team to add trimethoprim sulfa. You know, it ended up a few hours later, I get a page and ended up uh, being pseudomonas. Um, so now we knew the species. So I called our, our attending, our ID attending, and, um, you know, uh, we definitely agreed to discontinue the trimethoprim sulfa. They just got a dose. Um, but, I, you know, it didn't really sit well with me having them on just miropenem uh, for a pseudomonas. And so we kind of mulled that over. And ultimately, I pushed for uh, septolazone tazo because, you know, the more I thought about it, um, you know, uh, I was really worried about uh, carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas. It's pretty, pretty common to see, um, in, especially in the context of, you know, 10 days of piptazo. And so it, it ended up in the next few days that uh, we got the senses back. And, and sure enough, it was miro-intermediate um, and, and the septolazone tazo was continued and ended up being uh, sort of the correct uh, directed therapy, uh, according to how we felt. Um, patient did great. They engrafted. They got their perirectal abscess drained. Um, and we were talking with the attending a few days later, and he was like, well, how did you know that it was going to be, uh, you know, resistant to carbapenems? And, you know, it's a good question. We, we don't know that. Um, and I didn't know that. But it's really kind of more of a intuition. Um, but maybe more combo of kind of know, you know, known risk factors playing in. Um, seeing a lot of repetition on micro rounds and in clinical care, as well as kind of feeling confident that if we start one of these broader spectrum drugs that in, at least in my setting, we can typically get it stopped, you know, when the dust settles. So I think if we look back on this uh, example, you know, it, it wasn't perfect by any means. We still gave a, you know, unnecessary dose of trimethoprim sulfa and miropenem. Um, you can argue that maybe the stenal risk wasn't as great. Um, we could have we could have escalated the septoltazo earlier, uh, but in the end, patient did great. We don't never know because of or in spite of our efforts. But I figured I'd share this case just because it sort of demonstrates the complexity uh, that makes uh, that makes up this whole idea of empiric escalation. Wow, there's so much great stuff here from from both of you guys. I'm struggling to figure out kind of what are, what to react to first. Um, and Frank, my my heart really goes out to you. I, I definitely feel a lot of what you're saying and see that reflected in, in my own practice. Your experience in recommending early empiric uh, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim and then switching to ceftolazane tazobactam or, or CT is exactly the type of call that I see during these more difficult empiric escalation calls that we make. Um, it's interesting because they do tend to be these patients that fall outside the norm for us. We normally do know them very well, and we can see them coming from uh, a mile away. Um, I also laughed. I can picture the face of your attending saying, how did you know? They probably wanted to know where you'd hit in your crystal ball, right? Because we get that a lot. I think you brought up really good points that a lot of this is intuition. A lot of this is pattern recognition, and it comes down to clinical experience, which is something that I think you, you know is recognized in the IDSA guidance documents on this topic. And we've discussed it in previous podcasts as well. So I'm very grateful that you guys are here to, to provide your clinical expertise. So with that, uh, tell me, uh, of all your recommendations as an ID pharmacist and antimicrobial steward, what proportion would you qualify as empiric escalation? In addition, are, are there any differences in how this type of recommendation is delivered or received compared to other antimicrobial recommendations that you routinely make? So I think it sort of depends on what role I'm playing. You know, I round with an oncology ID team. So I'd say in that role, probably 80% de-escalation, 20% escalation. However, when I'm wearing my antimicrobial stewardship hat, I'm working through maybe a positive blood culture list sort of activity. And there, I, it's really probably more 50-50 in terms of escalation, de-escalation. Um, in general, escalations are something I'd like to happen right away. Uh, so I tend to be more aggressive in reaching out to get that recommendation across. Um, depending how compelling the reason is, it may be easy to do it over text uh, or we use uh, you know, a secure chat in our EMR. Um, so I might say, you know, hey, we have GPCs in the blood. I don't see any anti-staph drugs. You know, do you want to start Vanco or, or adaptomycin? However, when it's one of those softer calls that's kind of born out of intuition or maybe some combination of maybe some weaker rationales, um, I like to have a conversation to feel through the case uh, as I make the recommendation. You know, I'm really wary of, of having all my recommendations and interventions be sort of at, you know, the same tone or volume. Um, I, think, I think it's really important with, with relationships in uh, antimicrobial stewardship um, uh, to, to convey that. 
I want, I want my colleagues to know that when I'm really sure and, um, and when I'm really uh, a little bit concerned or hesitant, you know, also by the very, by the very nature, you know, we're kind of fine tuning individual antibiotics for individual patients. I think it's important, you know, that these sort of things be a discussion and that I display, you know, an open inquisitive mind towards their patient. Um, I definitely don't want to be the antibiotic police or just, you know, kind of like laying down a recommendation, sort of take it or leave it. Um, you know, if you, if you think about it as well, like, it, you know, these empiric es escalation wrecks are layered on, uh, you know, a variety of patients. You know, I think it's, it's definitely different if we're talking about an immune competent versus immune compromised patient, someone who's septic versus not septic. And sometimes you just have to talk to the uh, you just have to talk to the other clinicians to figure out what's going on with the patient. So you kind of come into the conversation um, with some preconceived ideas, but but through that course of that that discussion is where you really get into your your final rec. Um, and thinking about the idea of of uh, these escalation recommendations, I think they're essential to building credibility with these primary teams. So if you're a steward and and you focus mainly on restriction, de-escalation, IVDPO it can set a tone, uh, a policing tone, or you could get, you could come across with the, you know, idea that, you know, maybe your ultimate purpose isn't the patient's best interest, but mostly cost or something like that. Um, and I think escalation recommendations really demonstrate very clearly that you're here about, you're here for the individual patient. Um, when you take that time to reach out, um, I think that really does come across. Um, so, you know, and the reason being is because that's where we may, in those situations, we may be increasing cost um, or spectrum. And therefore, it really demonstrates um, optimization rather than minimization. So I've, I've found that these sort of escalation interventions are crucial to building trust um, with, with our primary teams, with our colleagues, um, because and especially in those patients, especially in those um, relationships where maybe there was initially kind of dis dismissal or suspicion uh, of a steward's role, right? They might say, oh, that's antimicrobial stewardship. They're just trying to, you know, limit what I'm doing. And so these empiric escalations really, um, really go a long way into building, uh, you know, building that trust. Um, and I, I see these, that these sort of empiric escalations tend to be accepted at a higher rate than, say, de-escalations. Um, mostly because from the perspective of the primary team, um, you know, they're usually happier uh, or, or less concerned about escalation than de-escalation. Frank, I'm really grateful that you brought up that point about credibility. I can definitely see similarities in my own practice uh, and some new things in kind of what you're talking about regarding the psychology of making these types of recommendations that you've helped me to think about um, as I reflect on this practice. I completely agree that empiric escalation recommendations help prove that an antimicrobial stewardship program's uh, commitment is truly to optimizing therapy for the sake of the patient. And that goes in both directions, right? We want the right drug for the right patient for the right time, et cetera. Um, our stewardship team in South Carolina, I think, I feel like we gained a lot of respect locally from high ranking clinicians, be they in the ICU or other parts of the hospital, after we made some urgent calls to empirically escalate that likely saved patient lives. You can never say for sure, but everyone felt a, a lot better knowing that we had appropriate antimicrobial therapy on as early as possible. Um, so considering the high stakes for these types of recommendations, do you allow trainees to make them on your behalf? I think for the straightforward escalations, um, definitely, uh, definitely the trainees can, can make them and, and encourage them to do so. However, for the, the ones where there's a little bit more back and forth and in this sort of scenario where I was talking about, um, you know, getting more information kind of in the, in the moment to kind of alter what your, your final rec might be, those I like to model a little bit um, with the training before kind of letting loose on the reins, um, just because some of those conversations can kind of go awry. So I think it's nice to, you know, provide that sort of example um, and, you know, before, before uh, you know, having the trainee just kind of go in. Yeah, classic model of, you know, see one, do one, teach one. I definitely see that in our, our stewardship practices as well. I'm just curious, looking at the other end, do you convey these recommendations through the ID consult physician? Yeah, most of our restrictions uh, in my, in my uh, uh, site require ID being involved. So as long as I run it by our current ID team, it's pretty easy to get things started um, or escalated, you know, usually to those, you know, restricted drugs. Um, I round with them uh, most days, so it's pretty easy to have that conversation, um, and we have that kind of open communication. 
Um, but I think this kind of touches on another aspect uh, around empiric escalation. And, you know, it, it, and, that's, and that's this idea that, you know, once we decide as a steward, oh, we want to sort of make a recommendation for escalation, um, it may be that in the near future that the primary team may be reaching out to the ID team for a consult as well. So both these things might be happening kind of near simultaneously or within that same day. And it can get really messy if our stewardship team is recommending one thing and then maybe later in the afternoon, ID sees the patient and makes a different rec. So, um, you know, I've definitely uh, in the course of my career um, seen that happen uh, quite a few times and, you know, kind of and sometimes negatively. Uh, and so uh, I've really learned from that, um, that, you know, even, um, you know, e in my current role where I'm, I'm sort of the steward and I'm also on the rounding team, it's a little easier, but, but uh, I think it's especially important if you work in a, in an arena where you have sort of a separate stewardship person and a separate sort of rounding team person. Um, if they're different, it's a good idea to, I think, shop your idea by the other person or, you know, reach out to the ID team if you're the steward um, before you make direct to sort of get on the same page um, so that you don't have this sort of discordance. Um, and if, if it's really urgent, you know, sometimes it comes up or someone asks you in the moment, you know, you're, you're walking through a unit or something, um, at least try to give a heads up to, to your ID colleagues um, just so again, you can kind of have that cohesiveness. Yeah, I agree, Frank. I think that the rapport with attendings and fellows on the ID service is crucial. And one way to build that rapport is just for us to put in the work. I mean, we're pharmacists, so we're type A. Um, and, and I know our listeners include more than pharmacists and, and this, this work does not require a pharmacist. Um, but oftentimes I find us just picking up the phone and calling the outside hospital to get the antibiotic history uh, to get the culture history, to get crucial information about the patient. And as you know, when we accept the patient from an outside hospital, we have to file a records request and that can take several days. We get 200 pages of documentation that is poorly scanned and you have to filter through. Whereas if you just call um, the outside hospital and speak to a human being, um, our pharmacy network for us has proved absolutely crucial to get some of this information early. And so this putting in of the work of, of calling and getting that information and providing it to our ID team to us has, has been beneficial to, to win them over and build that rapport. Also other functions that we can do to save them time is an allergy review, um, really going and speaking to the patient, documenting all their allergies, cleaning up their allergy list and, you know, doing a pin fast assessment so that we can actually, you know, move forward with something more narrow spectrum or even broader spectrum. Um, then the last thing that we also can do to help is to actually go down to the micro lab or to call micro lab. Um, for us, we have this highly guarded uh, lab notes that nobody else has where we can actually see the work up and, and we take that uh, responsibility very um, uh, professionally. So we don't abuse that ability to see whether it's a non-fermenter or oxidase positive or spready or smells like butterscotch, but we use all of that information to communicate with the team and those interventions or communications are so um, appreciated that oftentimes that's kind of how we uh, win ourselves into the team because that's that information is pure gold for empiricism. It either helps support or challenge their theories for the differential diagnosis or at least uh, the pathogen at play. And like I said, sometimes we'll actually go down to microlab and pull slides to look at the gram stain or pull plates to look at the uh, morphology or the growth patterns. Um, and that also helps us tailor therapy. So even just this past week, I was able to tailor therapy and pull off gram negatives um, or gram negative coverage because um, I had this hunch, this patient didn't look like they had a gram negative um, on paper, um, but they did call gram negatives on the gram stain. So I actually went down and, and looked at it in person and they just over decolorized um, the gram positives. And it was really only gram positives there so we're able to stop cefepime in a patient with neurotoxicity. All of that information, like the putting in of the work and going down and connecting those dots and then communicating it in a respectful but inquisitive way, I think makes a huge difference in, in building that rapport. Um, and yes, we absolutely involve trainees in, in that process as well. Kate, I think you just made quite a few ID pharmacists jealous with the fact that you have instant access to those lab notes and micro details in your system. I know for me, that would probably save me quite a few minutes in, in my day to day. Uh, I think you guys make excellent points. Um, we teach the same concepts to our trainees as well. 
Um, I, I've shared a lot of similar experiences to what you guys are describing. I definitely have my pharmacy students pull out their uh, flow charts that they have from microbiology class, and I teach them to ask the lab about, you know, we do have to call, right? So we or walk to the lab. Uh, we don't have access to the notes, but it's actually kind of beneficial because then they have a, a conversation with the technician and they can ask, is it growing on the McConkie agar? You know, what are the results of the indole or oxidase test and so on? I still find it impressive um, what quick and traditional benchtop tests can, can still tell us. And I think you're absolutely right. It really is valuable for, for this empiricism that we're talking about. And in my experience, the medical team definitely appreciates these details as well. With regards to communication um, at our local site, we definitely do check in with the ID consult physician if time allows, since we want stewardship recommendations to be congruent. Uh, so it sounds very similar to like what Frank was discussing. Um, but another a key member of the healthcare team that we coordinate a lot with. A lot of these uh, patients end up being, you know, septic shock in the ICU. So we typically communicate with a critical care pharmacy specialist as well. They're very well regarded as ID experts, um, and they also seem to kind of have this crystal ball. So we will discuss these recommendations with them in a timely fashion. Um, and that also, you know, now we have an additional ally that's helping to make that case for, for the empiric escalation uh, that is well respected uh, by those providers that know them really well. So in regards to that, um, I think there's a lot of similarities across all of us, but coming back to the original question, Kate, I'm curious, what proportion of your recommendations are empiric escalation? Well, first, let me say I, I feel guilty that I didn't mention our strongest allies, which are the frontline clinical pharmacists on the unit, because you're right. They know their patients backwards and forwards, whether it's critical care, or oncology or BMT or transplant. I mean, they are such a good source of information, a direct line to what happened on patient care rounds. So as for how often I'm escalating, I'm guessing maybe 20%, though I don't have data to back that, but it's similar to, to Frank's uh, description of his job duties. But I will say at my institution, our micro lab has been doing an innovative process called direct susceptibilities or direct senses for many years, since at least 1984, um, sometime before then. And it's great because CLSI finally actually updated the M100 this year in the 2022 version to include the process for what we're doing that I'm about to explain. It's likely much easier to follow the CLSI guidance document than my explanation. So I encourage you to go look at table 3E1, but this process is so crucial to our workflow. I'd like to explain it here so you can appreciate how simple of a diagnostic tool this is. So traditionally in what you do and all hospitals do for, for blood culturing and susceptibility testing is when the blood culture bottle pops positive, where we plate that blood on a number of plates and those are incubated for around 16 to 24 hours. And if the growth is pure on those plates, then we can move to the next step. But if the infection is polymicrobial or there are multiple colony types, then the colonies must be resubbed to their own purity plates, costing us another 24 hours before susceptibility testing can even be initiated. But once we have that pure growth at 24 to 48 hours, the colonies are taken in a standard inoculum and we can complete susceptibility testing either via disc diffusion or gradient strips or via broth microdilution using an AST platform um, or a susceptibility testing platform like Vitek or Microscan or Phoenix. But all of that process takes around 48 to 96 hours uh, approximately. So if we back up to the positive blood culture bottle, we at UF do an additional process called direct susceptibilities. And at the time that blood culture bottle pops positive, that bottle is taken from the incubator and the blood is actually aspirated out using a needle. And that whole blood is used as the lawn to streak onto an auger plate. That auger plate is then stamped with Kirby Bauer discs that we've carefully selected. And it's important to note that that's not standard inoculum. It's not necessarily pure growth. And we take that into account when we're reading those susceptibility tests. In six to 16 hours, we literally have some clue of what's growing. So now we know whether it's a fermenter or non-fermenter, and we have all these rapid susceptibility testings using old school methods of, of stamped discs. But we have this very educated guess on, on what's going to be susceptible based on our strategic selection of those antibiotic discs. 
And of course we include our workhorses like Cefepime and Piptazo and Mirapenem. We also include our combination therapies like Imikacin or Levofloxacin, but we also include those novel agents. And I think it's really important to say that CLSI came out endorsing this practice this year in the EM100. So check that out. There is a table on direct susceptibility testing this year, and they give very limited options. I think it's like five options of what you can test. And so we don't do that. I think we test, oh gosh, maybe 12 antibiotics on our gram negatives, but it gives us an early idea of, of what we're looking at. And so all of our trainees, they come in and they say they want to go into ID to solve puzzles. And this is the ultimate puzzle. So we're dealing with real patients in their lives. So I wouldn't qualify it as fun, but it is really rewarding um, because we're the only souls in the hospital that get this information. So when the lab uh, notes that there's a, a resistant or no zone around an antibiotic that the patient's receiving, they call the ID pharmacy phone. And then we take it from there and make the intervention. Now, sometimes the patient's totally fine and stable and it's, you know, okay to wait, or, um, we know that it's just an overcall from a high inoculum of, uh, uh, plating because it is very susceptible to that inoculum size, but oftentimes we're making an intervention, uh, very early in therapy, like six hours, eight hours after the blood culture becomes positive. And it's very informed in the recommendation that we're making. Um, often this involves mirapenem vaporbactam or toltezo septolazine tazobactam. But I have numerous examples, like tons of examples um, where you get really good at predicting what's there based on the growth patterns, the smell, um, the um, uh, bench tests that they do, and then the susceptibility and piecing that all together. So we'll see that it's susceptible only to levofloxacin um, and CASAVI and know that that's going to be a steno, or we'll see that it's only susceptible to zosin and based on its bench um, assay or you know bench tests, we'll know that it's a chromobacter, and we get to we get to improve the patient's outcomes by changing therapy so much sooner. And then the last um, kind of point I'd like to make here, and I'll die on this hill, is that dose escalation is escalation. So at UF, we place a huge importance facility wide on the therapeutic drug monitoring of beta lactams, and I'm so proud of our providers because they've caught on so well. And they've taken up this TDM advocacy that we champion initially. So they'll catch that their patient has augmented renal clearance or uh, risk for an elevated MIC because of uh, known drug exposure. And they'll ask us, they'll call and say, what's the maximum tolerable dosing? And then speaking our vernacular is just something I, I'm so proud of. And so again, dose escalation is escalation, though not probably what we're talking about here today. Yeah, I'd like to mention that we, we also do uh, these this uh, method of direct uh, sensitivities. Um, and I think it's great because it really allows us another uh, intermediate time point between sort of species identification. Many of us get that now, um, you know, what, what the organism is, uh, but then we, there's that long wait until there's kind of full senses. And so this, uh, this idea of direct sensi allows for, um, you know, sometimes a day earlier, uh, if not two days earlier, um, some sense of what, what uh, sort of resistance we're looking at. Um, it tends to be the sort of thing that, that in, at least in my practice, that we escalate based on, um, not always doing a whole lot of, of de-escalation. Uh, but again, it, I think this, this fits right in with this whole idea of, of empiric escalation. Um, and, uh, you know, one sort of advantage, I think, of this direct sensi as well is for those really, really resistant organisms where um, we can tell pretty much, you know, at 24 hours that we're in, in that sort of boat. Um, it allows us to then, you know, think creatively about what sort of add-on tests beyond our sort of default standard senses that we can add on. So it gets us, again, you know, that, that stuff can, uh, you know, add more time. You know, we get our, sort of our default sensitivities, and then we say, oh, you know what, there's a lot of resistance here. We need to add on a couple more drugs, and, and this just moves that whole timeline up. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really excited, um, you know, now that it's, it's uh, at least a, a uh, sort of, uh, you know, recommended um, by the CLSI, um, and hopefully we can see um, um, some of these publications come forward uh, of how it's leveraged in stewardship. Yeah, Kate and Frank, I definitely appreciate you guys going through all those details. I'll be honest, I'm not sure if our clinical microbiology lab does direct susceptibility testing, but now you've piqued my interest. So I'm definitely going to be looking at that CLSI table. I, I think it was like 3E1 Kate, that you were mentioning, I'm going to go back and take a look at that and, and have a discussion with our micro lab to see if it's something we can do. 
I definitely was thinking about rapid phenotypic susceptibility testing results as something that's that's new, but it sounds like it's kind of been around for a while since uh, 1984. Um, in addition, uh, I also, I really love that point that you bring up, Kate, about uh, dose escalation is escalation. We talk a lot of times, and we have this in our own institution, where those real high dose or max dosing, uh, or even kind of uh, off-label, even higher dosing of select beta-lactams are really reserved for specific indications and high suspicion for MDR gram-negative infections. So I think that's a, a very valid point and something we should all keep in mind. Uh, last thing I, I did also want to comment, uh, we don't have time to talk about detailed TDM beta-lactams uh, today, but I think University of Florida is well-recognized as, as a U.S. center that does this. And I would encourage our listeners that are interested in learning more about this to hear Kate's colleague, Vina Venugopalin, talking about this during our uh, TDM beta-lactam episode that we did a couple of months ago on breakpoints. So with all this information, um, I very much am hoping to see some of the uh, publications and evidence that uh, Kate was talking about kind of coming through with using these direct susceptibilities. But in terms of looking at the literature, I also think it's worth reviewing the current state of evidence supporting this concept of empiric escalation. So the current IDSA guidance documents, they do focus primarily on definitive therapy, although the expert authors do give a mention to the importance of considering factors for resistance when selecting empiric antibiotic therapy. These include previous organisms identified in the patient uh, in the last six months, antibiotic exposures within the last 30 days, and local susceptibility patterns for the most likely pathogens. And I think all three of us would recognize those as things that we also look at in our daily practice. But I'll be honest, in researching for this particular episode, I had a hard time finding any mention of empiric escalation, or even not necessarily that term, but escalation in general as a focus of uh, an outcome um, in stewardship or, or infectious diseases research. However, I did look into the details of a few studies that focused on our novel gram-negative antibiotic agents, and there were a few things that stood out to me. So first, if we look at kind of the oldest of the novel uh, beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, ceftolazane tazobactam, or as I like to call it, CT, there are some data to suggest that early initiation is better for patient outcomes. In 2018, Jason Gallagher and colleagues published a multi-center study across 20 U.S. hospitals in open-form infectious diseases. They evaluated 250 patients treated with at least one dose of CT for multidrug-resistant pseudomonas infections. CT initiation was generally delayed, starting at a median of nine days after the index culture uh, was collected. And I think that would be similar to what a lot of us end up seeing in our practice. However, initiation of CT within four days of that index pseudomonas culture was independently associated with increased odds of clinical cure and increased odds of microbiologic cure, uh, along with decreased odds of mortality. Um, and the, the odds ratios on all those were, were pretty impressive, suggesting a sizable magnitude of that treatment effect. Um, however, it, in this particular study, it was not reported what proportion of CT was initiated empirically. Gleaning from the information that I read in the manuscript, I would estimate that about 25% of the population had initiation of CT under four days based on just some of those uh, characteristics that they reported um, in their results. But to be fair, we would definitely need additional studies that were specifically designed to verify the impact of empiric escalation, specifically with CT use. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit further, and I was trying to see if I could find anything um, estimating real-world use of CT um, in the empiric setting. And what I found was at least two different studies. Uh, one was by Bernard Castan and colleagues in uh, 2021. And the second was a, a single center Italian study by Rosario Coltrera and colleagues in 2020. Um, so the, the Castan and colleagues paper was a post-authorization study in 22 hospitals in France. Um, and then we've got the single center Italian study. Both of these were looking at real world use of CT 
and estimated empiric initiation in about 25 to 28% of all the CTUs. So the vast majority was definitive, but uh, a fair amount of it, surprisingly enough, uh, was in the empiric setting before our classic phenotypic testing results were, were available. Um, me personally, I, I find these data heartening as I always worry that the cost of these novel agents will relegate them to a really delayed time point uh, in treatment course. And I worry that um, as stewards or just clinicians in general, we might hold them a little too close to the vest um, and, and we need to be ready to use them in the patients that truly need them. Um, of note, I've really summarized a, a lot of data here and I've, I've thrown out some specific citations as always, uh, if our listeners are interested in reading more, you can find these and other relevant citations from this episode um, in the show notes uh, for this particular podcast. So I've gone through a little bit of kind of what I could find, um, and I focused on CT just to kind of scale in the discussion, but uh, what do you guys think of the state of evidence for empiric escalation? So it's interesting that you quote the 25% empiric therapy, and I know it's kind of like a rough estimate, but there actually was a study using the Visient database that I know our hospital ascribes to a lot of academic medical centers um, and tertiary care centers uh, send data to this Visient database. And Jeffrey Strick and colleagues in um, CID in 2020 published their pharmacoepidemiologic study. And they specifically looked at CASAVI just post-approval, I think in 2015, till 2017, and they looked over this period of time, not at outcomes, not at um, any microbiologic cure, anything like that, but just looking at empiric versus targeted, and they found 25% of CASAVI was empirically used, um, where only 65% was targeted, and, and so I took that 25%, and I was thinking, you know, is that what we're doing? Is 25% of our CASAVI empiric uh, we contribute to that Visient database. That feels a bit high for us, if I'm honest, but, um, you know, given that we still don't really understand when to use it empirically. Um, but I thought this paper by Philippe uh, Montrevers, which was published in uh, Current Opinion in Infectious Diseases in 2018, so after uh, CASAVI was approved and we had Toltezo, they published this paper and it actually has some pretty spiffy flow charts. And, you know, if you're an ID pharmacist and you don't love flow charts, I think you might be in the wrong specialty because I love a flow chart. And so I read through their flow chart. And basically <laughs> all, yeah, yeah. All roads lead to Toltezo and Kazavi. It seems like in their flow charts, but um, I'm being a little bit silly, but they give a lot of um, criteria for for use and kind of who should be considered for these empiric therapies. And so I think it's a good start though. If, like I mentioned, if we did use those routinely, I, I do think the criteria are lenient and it would lead to a lot of um, overly broad or unnecessary use. Um, so I, I think we still need to use our brains. Um, but Emily Heil published a paper in JID in 2020 and, and she and some co-authors uh, took on the broadness of antibiotics in sepsis and the importance of getting it right by incorporating those risk factors to make a better decision. But she also included some pragmatic considerations for when we have time to wait and not rush to judgment. And I, I like that phrase that they use, these authors, the rush to judgment. The too long didn't read version is septic shock. And I, I mean shock, not just sepsis, not just someone who's surgery, but someone who requires vasopressors in uh, shock. We know that time is mortality. And I think if we're on this subject and we don't mention uh, the Kumar study uh, of 7% increase in mortality for every hour of delay in appropriate therapy for septic shock, then um, we haven't done due, due diligence. So there it is. Uh, but how do we prescribe that appropriate therapy? That's what's at, at, at stake here. So it's, it's the usual things. So we have to know the right pathogen, right? So it's the site of infection, our antibiogram, trends at our institution and knowing that source and what's the likely pathogen there and those antibiogram trends. It's where did the patient come from, whether it was a nursing home. I know in Gainesville, we have a, a notorious um, nursing home that breed, we have resistant organisms that, that we know come from there. And so knowing that's the patient's origination really helps us to refine empiric therapy, um, knowing their prior antibiotic exposure 
whether they're immunocompetent, I think Frank highlighted this uh, a little bit when he was talking, makes a big difference. Even something like diabetes uh, mellitus makes uh, a difference in, in whether or not they have different resistant pathogens. And then lastly, invasive procedures. So some of these organisms don't really have the virulence mechanisms to get in and cause disease where um, they are, unless you disrupt a membrane or you disrupt the anatomy of the patient. So those invasive procedures make a, a big difference, I think, namely in intra-abdominal infections. Um, but this paper uh, by Emily Heil and colleagues is also a great summary of data on specific risk prediction scores. And Julie, I, I know that you uh, alluded to the fact that you use these risk prediction scores. We do not. Um, they, they listed some prediction scores for ESBL and CRE infections, and, and I got a little bit giddy reading these to try and figure out um, if we could use these. But I was a little bit disappointed um, because a lot of these prediction scores, kind of like invasive candidiasis, which I promise not to overly obsess over in this talk, um, they depend on those surveillance cultures for colonization status. And so um, doing surveillance cultures, be it rectal surveillance or, or multiple site uh, um, of colonization surveillance, scares me a little bit. I'm afraid of the CSCRE, treat a CRE mentality. Um, and it's definitely not our practice to do surveillance cultures, um, but that is a part of some of these risk prediction scores. And outside of that paper, there I found various nomograms for predicting resistance in specific populations or infection types. And honestly, like you pick the infection type and it seems like there's a nomogram or a, a machine learning um, uh, proposal for, for predicting resistant organisms in that disease state. So whether it's UTI or diabetic foot infection, um, I found a, a dissertation uh, from a PhD candidate predicting ESBL carriage in ICU patients at Johns Hopkins, um, found a score to predict CRE, uh, neutropenic fever, predicting MDR pseudomonas score, um, just predicting drug resistance in ICU patients or in CAP. Um, I, I found quite a lot of these. Some of them, like I mentioned, are machine learning and not something that we could just deploy today, but some of them advertised as kind of like bedside uh, nomograms, which I found funny because I almost felt like you needed a protractor to like track where your patient fell on the different scoring rubrics. <laughs> And uh, maybe needed to do differential equations, which I haven't done since undergrad. Oh no, no, we're yeah. not, we're not going there this part. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's like just a bedside, <laughs> just a quick bedside, excuse me, you know, let me get my protractor out, but um, you know, that exists. And I think we're in the early stages where this podcast would be so dated if you listen to it in five years, because I really do think that those might be integrated uh, more seamlessly in the future. Um, but as to the question of if these novel last line, we call them last line antibiotics can be um, uh, used empirically, I think the answer is, is yes. And if we take that leap and entertain the thought of empiric escalation, does that make a difference or does it bring the immediate harm? And um, Julie highlighted uh, Jason Gallagher's study looking at Toltezo. I found an older study in 2010 by Michael Hibbard um, and colleagues, they uh, published in Surgical Infections. They looked at empiric broad therapy, and I like this term with aggressive, aggressive de-escalation and like what physician likes aggressive de-escalation, none. Um, but they looked at VAT patients and their primary outcome that they were looking at, or one of their main outcomes they were looking at was the emergence of gram-negative resistance. And so they were trying to set out to say that if we give amipenemcilostatin broadly to our VAT patients and then aggressively de-escalate de at day two, if culture results don't reveal that they need that therapy. And honestly, they had 92% de-escalation compliance. I, I dream of that uh, number, um, but they didn't find any statistically significant increases in resistance. The outcomes were measured a year apart and looking at their methods, I'm not sure that they could fully capture resistance emergence and in submitting articles before, like just looking at your one patient and their bacteria that you're studying and the emergence in that bacteria isn't the whole story. Like, are you also increasing the resistance of their colonizing bacteria that you're not measuring? Are you increasing the resistance of their neighbor and, you know, the, the next hospital bed over? Um, so I'm not sure that these outcomes are, are something to hang our hat on, but I think that there, it shows that there's a hole in this data that, you know, we could be looking at, um, empiric uh, therapy broadly with, with aggressive de-escalation. Yeah, I mean, thinking about the, the, the data that's out there, um, it's, it's really, you're right, it's really hard to find um, evidence, you know, fully in support of, of this empiric uh, de-escalation strategy. 
Um, I would say that you know, any of the studies that demonstrate timed antibiotics uh, as a determinant of clinical success certainly are in support of at least the concept of empiric escalation, or at least are the impetus by which we you know, embark on making these uh, interventions. Um, in terms of HEMONC uh, uh, ID patients, um, we do have a, this, this article that always kind of sticks in my mind from 2014 in uh, BMC Infectious Disease by Regis Rosa and colleagues um, at a, is a tertiary care hospital in Brazil. Um, and they found that patients did worse uh, in, in the group in that study that weren't treated in accordance with their institutional recommendations for neutropenic fever. And when you get into the analysis, it was determined that the most common deviation from sort of their institutional uh, recommendations uh, was an inadequate spectrum of, of antibiotic in terms of the choice that was chosen as that empiric regimen. And so you know, it's not totally clear whether the you know, uh, decreased clinical outcomes were a result of, of, of that choice or not, but it does suggest that it's important. It gives us some, um, you know, some insight into the idea that having the empiric choice uh, right early on is important. Um, you know, I do have some concerns about solely utilizing time to antibiotic studies um, or these sort of like missed opportunities for an early active antibiotic study uh, to fully support this practice. Um, I think it is, you know, there's certainly compelling data out there that uh, later antibiotic administration is associated with negative clinical outcomes in, in say sepsis and septic shock. Um, but we, we don't really know whether kind of forcing an intervention um, to, to force that antibiotic to happen earlier um, just simply fixes those negative outcomes or if, or if it's you know, more complex than that. Um, and I think it also uh, you know, stands to be tested that you know, population may be a factor as well. So what sort of patient population we're talking about. You know, when I was working um, a few years ago back at MD Anderson, one of our uh, former residents, uh, Grace Benanti, uh, published a study uh, along with her mentor, Sam Aiken, in 2019 um, and really the paper focused on um, ESBL uh, empiric therapy and found that there was a lack of difference in mortality for patients that were treated either with carbapenems or uh, cefepime or piptaza, which are kind of the first line um, neutropenic fever agents, uh, you know, that are seen commonly in that patient population. Um, the carbapenems were associated with uh, shorter defervescence and maybe a little less micro failure. Um, but again, that, that overall mortality really, really wasn't different. Um, and, and kind of prior to that, um, we had a resident project, uh, Jessica Barron, uh, uh, who ended up submitting a poster or presenting a poster uh, presentation at, at the, the last ICAC, um, kind of showing my age there. Um, but in any case, uh, we looked at risk factors for ESBL bacteremia. And, uh, you know, while it wasn't a primary outcome of the study, we did look at, at what happened in patients who, um, who had uh, ESBL bacteremia in the, this hemoc population um, and did not receive carbapenems versus those that received carbapenems uh, as empiric therapy. And we really didn't see any kind of mortality uh, difference there. I think it's important to note that in kind of both cases, the patients were uh, most often escalated to carbapenem directed therapy uh, once susceptibilities were known. And you know, that happened probably at around the 48 hour mark uh, in, in both those studies. So it just kind of begs the question, you know, as, especially as we talk about, um, you know, we're kind of parsing this, this whole process of, you know, totally empiric to full susceptibilities known. Um, so this idea of having, you know, direct senses, having the, the various um, rapid diagnostic platforms, we have all these little steps in, along the way. And it really begs the question is, at what point do you need to be making that empiric escalation? How, how soon does it need to happen? Um, especially if you think about patients outside of, of true sepsis, septic shock. Um, you know, another way to flip that around is like how many, how many patients do need that and, you know, how would we identify which patients do need that, that earlier drug? So I just kind of take that, that concept, um, you know, in, in kind of running with it, I, I kind of think about the negative consequences of, of what if we are too overzealous with our empiric escalation. And so I keep that in the back of my mind when I'm having these conversations or making these sort of interventions as to, you know, um, you know, just having some, uh, you know, having some, some sort of uh, kind of pullback on, on whether I'm going to make that intervention or not. Um, I, you know, I think about things like detriment to the microbiome, antibiotic toxicities, increased cost, potential resistance uh, implications. So suffice to say, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, um, but I think it would be great if we could characterize this 
intervention directly and, and make sure that we are actually seeing the impact that we think. Um, I think we'd feel a lot better about making those sort of uh, interventions. I think it's fascinating that all three of us uh, have spent so much time looking for this literature. And even though this is a practice that we all describe doing on, on a daily basis, we still don't quite understand the full risks and benefits of, of empiric escalation. And I think that's just, you know, calling a spade a spade and being fair, that, that there is a clinical equipoise here. We probably do uh, need to do additional research to really evaluate the detailed benefits and risks of even one additional dose of, of an ultra broad spectrum gram negative agent. I think we, I would agree with many of the points that you guys made. You're pulling from all different kinds of literature and tying it back to the host and the patient population and the severity of illness and septic shock. These are all tenets of infectious diseases that have come up in various review articles, like the one you mentioned uh, by Dr. Heil and colleagues. And I think we definitely breathe and practice these concepts on a daily basis. But I was so surprised to find that empiric escalation being something that many of us, if not necessarily familiar with the term, it's something that many stewardship programs and ID pharmacists do recommend. Um, I, I think it comes back to all three of us at one point or another have discussed balancing the lack of evidence for this practice with what we do after we make a change. So for example, at the very beginning, Frank, you were talking about making sure you have a de-escalation plan, right? I feel a lot more comfortable with recommending empiric CT if I know that I already have growth uh, and, and a gram stain that shows a GNR and I know I'm gonna get some senses eventually, but that's still a question. You know, I'm still giving CT to this person for, for a couple of days. We're gonna choose in whom that is. Well, we're gonna have a nuanced discussion. I also love the point that you made about, you know, not having a, a one-tone recommendation and this is where a lot of that modeling of a recommendation comes in. A lot of what I end up teaching my pharmacy trainees is I don't have to come to these patient cases with the final answer and present it as a nice, neat little bow, like we must do this empiric escalation. It is definitely a discussion. And I think the lack of the evidence base in this particular space goes to a lot of the reason why uh, we need to, you know, move forward with, with nuance and, and some caution. So uh, the last thing that this kind of reminds me of this whole discussion we're having um, is the recent call to action that SIDP released on March 18th of this year. And it was really regarding infectious disease pharmacists having a role in conducting and disseminating research that evaluates antimicrobial stewardship program interventions and their impact on patient outcomes. Um, I know many ID pharmacists play a key role in empiric escalation. Um, and I would love to see published data on how they approach this issue, including these best practices and pitfalls, even, even more so than what we're describing today. Today, we'll wrap up with our fun segment that we call I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's I Feel Nerdy, we're going to share our favorite page or curbside. I don't know if anybody still uses pages, but we do. Um, so favorite page or curbside that you've ever received as an ID specialist and why? Kate, you go first. I struggled with this. I should have been more prepared, uh, you know, wanting to do this podcast for so long, but I just chose my most recent one. And um, I got a call from one of our cardiac ICU pharmacists about an LVAD patient with acinetobacter in his blood. Um, and she mentioned there's also Karini bacterium. Um, and it's one of those moments that happens to all of us all of the time where, you know, the question that you're being asked is not the question that you should be asked. Like, it's a clue to something bigger. And I love making these leaps. Like I like hearing the question and going, no, 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 that's not actually your question. This should be your question. And here's the answer, by the way. Here's your actual question that you have for me. <laughs> well, I don't say it. I try not to. Um, I, I have a lot of imposter syndrome, so I don't tend to practice uh, with a lot of hubris, but I do teach the trainees to like dig deeper into what the question actually should be. And you, you recognize patterns, especially like from our urology folks, like, you know, exactly what their question needs to be before they even ask you their question. Um, but anyways, there's a miscommunication in this patient and actually the actinomyces uh, or the, the acinetobacter was actually actinomyces. And it was 
identified on mass spec as this actinomyces nui isolate. And, um, and so I was able, again, with these lab uh, comments that uh, we, we really are so thankful for, um, was able to see and, and look up. So actinomyces nui is coriniform. It looks like bacterium, And so it was actually just miscalled, um, but able to log into the mass spec and see the actual true gene, um, genus and species with a 99.9% .9 predicted um, accuracy. Uh, this species, Actinomyces nui, is associated with bacteremias. It's abscessogenic in LVAD patients. And so something that was going to be disregarded and um, just treated as a gram-negative bacteremia turns into almost like a staff-like picture with a where did it come from, where did it go? Um, and it becomes very, very problematic in an LVAD patient with all that circuitry. Um, so I played a part in fitting those puzzle pieces together, and they probably would have come together eventually. I don't know. Um, but I like doing that kind of work. I like doing that, that piecing the puzzle together. I think it makes all the other drudgery we do with de-escalating vancomycins or whatever, really worth it. Also, as an aside, funny enough, acinetobacter and actinomyces empiric therapy are kind of overlapping, so maybe no harm done. Um, the patient never was off of appropriate therapy. But either way, I think this is a good example of where communication is so important. And when your spidey senses go off that, you know, the question you're being asked doesn't really match the patient case you have at hand. Um, it, it can get really confusing with all these mass spec names um, to the species level, which picks up on so much stuff. But I, I like that example as a communication um, in, in stewardship and piecing that puzzle together. So for me, uh, I'll kind of share uh, a story that's kind of uh, was a little bit more like shocking or memorable. Um, so it's, it's been a while, so I may be misremembering a bit, um, but I was kind of rounding late in the day on oncology ID rounds um, and when one of my colleagues, uh, clinical pharmacist down in the ED, messaged me on my work-issued BlackBerry. It's obligatory, obligatory to say, I love that keyboard. Um, anyways, so they asked, the, hey, do you know how to treat smallpox? Um, and needless to say, I was just like, are you kidding me? Smallpox? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I hadn't been carrying a Sanford guide for a while. Um, you know, kind of too, oh, cool. No. <laughs> yeah, too cool for school. Um, but suddenly I just had that feeling like, you know, like a kid that needs his uh, security blanket. Right. I was like, oh, oh my God, what, what is, what's going on here? Um, anyways, long story short, um, you know, we, we, uh, the team I was on, we officially got consulted a little bit later in, in the day, um, come to find out that um, this unique scenario was a patient had gotten a smallpox vaccine, uh, which is a vaccinia virus, um, not the variola virus, uh, which is responsible for smallpox. Um, but, you know, in patients that are immune compromised, they can, it can, dis the vaccinia virus can disseminate and then, you know, actually ends up need needing to be treated, um, you know, with some help from CDC and government agencies with drugs like uh, this drug, I think it was called Ticoviramat um, and Vaccinia immune globulin. So anyways, it was just uh, just kind of a crazy, crazy text to see, you know, sort of late in the day, um, pro you know, probably was a Friday. So <laughs> of course, it's, it's always 430 on a Friday. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that for, for the record, that would have caught me by surprise, too. And I definitely would have wanted some kind of guide. Um, I don't even know that I could pronounce that that drug that you use to treat it but uh, I, I love these cases for me the my favorite one um, is actually one that caught me by surprise too um, I was about three years ago um, I picked up the phone and the provider at the other end said uh, Julie do you have a contact in the military to get bacteriophages and I was just like what <laughs> so I, I mean, it was actually a really fascinating case and then really rewarding in the end uh, strangely enough it was also an LVAD patient. So uh, Kate, I'm not trying to copy you, I promise. Uh, it just happened to be similar. Maybe it's something about the Southeast in our patients, but um, she was an elderly female with a destination LVAD and uh, it was complicated by a driveline infection and a prosthetic knee joint infection with DTR pseudomonas aeruginosa. Um, it, it's a real long treatment course, but suffice it to say, she had been on uh, therapy with CT for about a year and a half, not surprisingly, emerged resistant, had hetero-resistant subpopulations, 
Um, the resistance to the CT uh, was something new for us at the time. And we were like, what is this? Uh, it was likely due to high level AMPC production as Ryan Shields uh, taught me. This was before the podcast episodes, but he taught me in the pod episodes too. So thanks, Ryan. Uh, shout out to you. Um, and we were able to even see some weird return susceptibility to carbapenems that were initially resistant. And at the point where she was, obviously, this is destination LVAD. Uh, there's only so much source control that we could do for her underlying infectious syndromes. So the team did want to add adjunctive bacteriophage therapy through an EIND with the FDA, which we were able to get. Um, of course, the, these types of disastrous infections always happen to like the nicest people and this fits her bill as well. So I ended up, you know, seeing her every day and helping her through this process. Uh, and it was really nice because that adjunctive bacteriophage therapy regimen with those novel gram negative agents, it was able to get her off of IV antibiotics for a couple of months in her life. Um, she did end up passing away eventually due to her underlying comorbidities, uh, but um, it was really fascinating to see an infection that I thought, oh, I don't have an answer for this. And then eventually we were able to kind of pull out one more regimen that, that worked for her. So fun story, hopefully a little bit uplifting. Um, it is uh, something nerdy that we could definitely talk about. I have a feeling a bacteriophage uh, you know, or, or LVAD episode is kind of worthy, uh, in the future. I don't know about a smallpox one though, Frank, I'll be honest. <laughs> I don't know who we would get to do those. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for joining me today. And thank you, our loyal audience for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Before you leave us, we do have important news to share. So stay tuned next month for a celebration on the second annual Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Day held on Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. This day recognizes the importance of ID pharmacists in promoting appropriate antimicrobial use and the contributions they make to patient care, education, and research. This year's theme is deprescribing antibiotics in COVID-19, a topic I'm sure everyone will love. Um, if you want to learn more, you can check out our website, SIDP forward slash ID Pharmacist Day. That's pharmacist with an S. There will be an opportunity to celebrate and show your support uh, with a Twitter storm, access to our advocacy toolkit, and a quote, share your story contest to be featured on our social media platforms. This is one of my favorite days last year, and we look forward to an exciting virtual, virtual turnout this year as well. With that, I've been your host, Julianne Gesto, and our featured speakers today have been Drs. Frank Tverdek and Kate Desir. Breakpoints was created by Aaron McCreary, Jason Pogue, and myself. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Travis Jones and peer-reviewed by Brandon Bookstaver and Melissa Badowski. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafante. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary, and our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.